0: In this episode of the Exploring Information Security Podcast, what is the Rural Technology Fund? (laughs) Welcome to the Exploring Information Security Podcast, where you will learn, explore, and grow your security mindset. I am your host, Timothy D. Block, and in this episode, we will be exploring what is the Rural Technology Fund? Joining me today to help answer this question is Chris Sanders, founder of the Rural Technology Fund and Applied Network Defense. Chris, how are you? Brother, I'm good, but we got to have a serious
1: talk now. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah, listen, I think this is, what, my third time on the podcast? Okay. Yeah, so I'm thinking I need one of those punch cards where, like, I get a punch every time <laughs> I'm on, and after 10, I want, I want something for free. I don't know what it is. It can be like an ice cream cone, but I want something
0: for free after 10. I'll give you 10% off the podcast. Okay, that that sounds great. I mean, I, I don't know what I'm paying for it now, but that sounds like a deal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Chris, Chris, welcome back. Thank you. Um, and you've plugged it before on previous episodes, but this year, um, around Christmas time, I always like to do like something, I don't know, like, like, I always, I personally, I give during the holiday season. I, I try to give throughout the year, but you know, especially during the holiday season, that's just presence of mind. So I always try to, you know, give a little bit of money. Uh, and I feel like, feel like I could do that with the podcast as well. Um, so this is actually going to be like released on Christmas Eve. Um, so hopefully, you know, uh, get people to, to donate to charities or, you know, at least contribute in some way. And yeah. I think your, your foundation here, the rural technology fund is a really great, um, idea it's 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 a great nonprofit i love what you're doing with it so let's dive into that like what sure. is the world technology fund
1: sure so our concept is pretty straightforward and we and, and i specifically really believe that computer and technology jobs have a very transformative power in that they're incredibly accessible. They can often be worked from a lot of places. There's a great demand there. There's really great careers for people to get into. And and because of that, they represent a lot of opportunity, specifically to those who maybe struggle to find opportunity or need that, specifically those who are disadvantaged economically and specifically people in rural areas. Because if you're from a rural area, you're more likely to fall into the group of being uh, just not being as wealthy and, and having all the things that come with living in poverty associated with that. So we Go into rural areas specifically, and we just want to introduce more kids to computer science, computer engineering, and other technical jobs. We go in, we sometimes do some things directly with the students in terms of scholarships, but primarily we work with public schools. And we go in and we find passionate teachers who want to teach their kids about computers, and we make sure they have the things they need, whether it's curriculum or equipment, uh, or just some motivation to help introduce kids to computer science and teach them about it and get them excited about it so that they can maybe one day pursue careers in that. And really, we're we're in the business of ending generational poverty we we find kids who live in poverty and their parents were in poverty but we don't want them to forever be in poverty we don't want their kids to be in poverty so that's really the battle we're fighting well
0: and something i found with these types of uh nonprofits and, and foundations is that there's always a personal story behind them so what's your personal story
1: yeah, absolutely, and that's right. I mean, I think to to understand the rural technology fund, you have to understand my story, and and you know, it's something I've spent a lot of time reflecting on. I grew up obviously in a rural area. I grew up in uh, uh, Western Kentucky, which. Kentucky's kind of a forgotten about state. Western Kentucky is the forgotten about part of the forgotten about state. Um, it's just it's out there. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere, right? It's, it's you got to fly to an airport and then drive three hours to get there. Um, and, and what I always say, you know, it's the middle of nowhere for most people, but it was the center of the universe for me growing up. That was my life. And, and I learned a lot of great things there. It's a community I feel very passionate about and, and just care so much about. But you know the thing is, it's it's you know a poverty-stricken area, and and I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And you know I saw a tweet the other day. I think it was Marcus Carey who tweeted out, "Shout out to everyone who is a free lunch kid," and uh, I, I was a free lunch kid, right? So we grew up in poverty. And it, for folks who are listening and not familiar with it, being a free lunch kid basically meant that you went to public school, and the government deemed it such that your family lived in poor enough state that you didn't have to pay for your lunch at school, right? That was uh, kind of a, a class designator to some degree. And, and I think a lot about what I knew about that then versus what I know about it now. And then it oddly enough, I didn't think I was poor. And I think a lot of people think that, Oh, you're a free lunch kid. You, you realize you're poor and you, you know, you're living poor. And I, I didn't realize that. And the reason was because all of my friends were also free lunch kids. I lived in an area where most people were poor and were below that poverty line. And, you know, Qualified for free lunch. So I didn't realize I was poor. As a matter of fact, when I saw kids who were actually paying for their lunch with money, I thought they were rich. Right. And that, that's kind of a weird existence mm-hmm. um, to, to live in, I guess. But that was just something that we had a weird concept of. So I grew up poor. I wasn't as poor as some of my friends. And I was also fortunate enough to realize that as rough as we had it, you know, I, I never went hungry. Sometimes, you know, Christmas was definitely a little light. Some years we didn't really have any extravagances. We didn't we didn't eat out a lot. But we also we, we owned a home. It was not much. I think it, the, the house I used to live in sold at auction for something like twenty four thousand dollars. Um, A few years ago. So <laughs> it wasn't much, but we did own a home and, and, you know, we didn't we didn't rent. We didn't live in, in in the trailer park. Nothing wrong with that. But that was kind of the social class system that existed in Western Kentucky at the time. So we had it rough, but not as rough as my other friends. And I was fortunate enough to grow up knowing that. But I grew up poor. And, and like I said, my, my parents were poor and their parents were poor. It was generational poverty. And I was really fortunate and that at some point through through weird happenstance, I got excited about computers. And and the short version of that story is I had a cousin who got arrested for selling drugs. Um, he went to prison. He took a computer class while he was there, uh, got really interested in that and came home. And one day I saw him you know, hacking away on MS-DOS and, and said, hey, what are you doing? And he showed me and I was hooked. And it was very fortunate that I had um I had parents who kind of let me pursue that as much as I could at home, but specifically I also had teachers who saw that I was really interested in that and let me pursue that at school and kind of fanned the flame and. You know that became a career and the rest is kind of history and, and whereas I grew up in poverty I'm, I'm not in poverty anymore and, and you know I don't have kids yet but God willing they will also not be in poverty and I was able to break that cycle and uh, I, I'm not ashamed to talk about that because I'm quite proud of that fact and I think that was really all made possible thanks to you know number one is, is computers and technology and the jobs that that can provide and the, the type of economic impact those jobs can have on a person and their family um, and also just the dumb luck of being fortunate enough to encounter teachers and people who cared about me in my life who fan that flame and uh, really helped me excel in that uh, in that area. And I also realized that other people are not going to always have that, that stroke of luck in their life. So I said, well, hey, maybe I can be that stroke of luck. Maybe I can be the one who helps fan that flame, enable those teachers to do the things they want to do. And that's really the story of the RTF. So that's how we got started in 2008.
0: And, and yeah, and I think that's, that's great. That's, that's a really great story. And I think computers and like the internet and stuff have have really become an equalizer for, for opportunities if you can put in the work. Yeah. I
1: mean, well, I mean, think about it this way. I mean, the barrier to entry now, even in rural areas, there's internet access, not everywhere, but it, but in most places there's some degree of internet access and that, that takes different forms. I know the first place I ever accessed the internet was the public library. And, and that's still the case for a lot of places. But if you can get interested in something, if you can get that initial spark, knowledge is more accessible than it's ever been. And you can learn to be a programmer independently. You can go online and learn how to do this stuff. A lot of us probably learned that same way. So, Knowledge is power and the knowledge is out there. So we've never, you know, the internet is kind of the great equalizer of our time and that it can change people's stars. It can change people's future. And, and that, that's just a super powerful thing. The fact that you have this medium, this simple computer that's sitting in front of me and I can create from it and, and create a whole new life for myself. And that's, you know, we want kids to realize that because they don't necessarily always realize that on their own I mean if you are a coal if you're, you're a coal miner and your dad's a coal miner and your grandfather's a coal miner then that's all you've ever known and and we want people to know that there's more out there and the potential that exists with the with computer jobs is just it's just so tremendous and and you know you know we hear the phrase make America great again I, I think America is already great I think America is the one of the few places in the world that no matter your socioeconomic status you can Get out of poverty, you can become something. and I do believe there's there's multiple paths to that. But I do think computer jobs and technology jobs are a glorious and great and accessible pathway to that, no matter who you are, where you come from, and what your background is.
0: yeah, it's it's all about opportunity and mm-hmm. and that's that's what all about the organization is that it provides opportunities and and it's uh, focused solely on kids, correct?
1: Uh, it, it is it is uh, we focus almost exclusively on, on k-12 we do offer some scholarships and things for for people already in uh, uh, in college but almost exclusively k-12 and and those going to public schools okay so what are some of your needs um in terms of like needs for the the nonprofit itself yeah no absolutely <laughs> yeah so I mean we we operate when I started this thing in in 2008 um, you know, we, we started out, we were originally just providing scholarships, right? I said, I wanted to provide a scholarship to my high school that I graduated from. I wanted to give back to my school. Um, I was very fortunate. I had a teacher um, in high school who on my graduation day, and I'll never forget this, her name was Lana Jackson, and, and she... Um, I was getting ready to graduate, and she walked up and was telling me how proud she was of me. I was going to college, first member of my family to go to college, first to graduate high school, let alone, and then go to college. And then uh, and she said, well, just remember, you're going to go on and do great things, but remember where you came from. And, and that has just stuck with me um, so much. So I really wanted to get back to my high school, and I knew that pretty early on. So that's why in 2008 we started with the scholarships. And for the first couple of years, we just provided the scholarships. After that, that's when we really started expanding our reach, getting involved with the classrooms, and uh, and trying to, you know, I'm when you grow up poor, you think about money a lot, right? And I think, you know, if I'm going to go into the nonprofit business, I'm going to have to ask people to give me their money so I can turn it into opportunities for other kids. And so I think, how can I be as efficient with that money as possible as possible? And that's exactly kind of what we've we've done is I've created a nonprofit where we don't pay any salaries, we don't have any overhead. My for-profit business pays all of our overhead, and we take all the money that comes in and we basically turn it into opportunities, and we use that to connect with these teachers in the classroom, to buy equipment for them, to give them things they need in terms of curriculum, and we try to make that use of that money as efficiently as possible. So really, we're designed such that we run with, you know, we don't have a lot of volunteers. We have some volunteers who help, but we don't require a lot of manual labor. We don't require a lot of, of people putting in as many man hours as some of the other charities do. So really for us, it's all about fundraising, right? It's fundraising and advocacy. We want to, the more money you raise, it's very simply- the more classrooms we can help. It's a very simple formula for us. And in terms of advocacy, the more people who know the good work we're doing, uh, the more money raised and the more work we can do. Right. It feeds into that sort of thing. So that's really our biggest need right now. And, you know, I'm glad we're talking in December. It's our, our biggest month of the year for fundraising. So that really uh, that really makes a big difference for us when people are thinking about giving. Um, we're glad to, to t- again, take that money, and invest it in these rural areas and make good things happen.
0: Yeah, no, and and what I love about, uh, like you said, the it seems like it's a very efficient small operating uh, foundation, and and uh, what I remember reading is that you have teachers who it's like they pretty much you're you're supplying them with more resources to help kids get into computers.
1: Yeah, you know, we, we kind of failed the first couple of times we did it because I knew early on that the, the, the real key to making the most impact was, was going through the schools and going through the teachers and, and really enabling them to do cool things. And the first couple times we did that, you know, we, we, you know, people would turn us on to, to specific schools and say, Hey, you should go do something in this school. And we would go there and we would say, all right, we're going to give you all this equipment. And we want you to teach kids about it and, and do all that. But, there weren't always passionate teachers in that school who were really into it. And so we would buy the equipment. We find out it wasn't really getting used. It would be sitting in a closet or maybe they'd use it like once or twice a year. And, and that doesn't really work for us. That's not what we want. We can't, you know, we can do a lot of things. We can't really make the teachers passionate about teaching right. these things. So we think we're better off finding teachers who are, who are better and more passionate about that. And, and fortunately, there's a lot more of them out there who are getting interested in it. That That is becoming less and less of a problem. So we focus really specifically on passionate teachers and really just enabling, them because teachers are in a lot of ways the most important people in, in some of these kids' lives. Um, you know, e- you know certainly especially the kids who come from broken homes and they they have family issues. The teacher is often the only stability they see, and that's really their the teacher is kind of their gateway into all these opportunities we talk about. So by enabling those teachers, that that really is the key from
0: our perspective. So how so how would someone get into the program if they if they if they're a teacher and they want to you know, get, get their kids some equipment to, you know, spark some of that interest. Uh,
1: the number one way is, is for them to find us and, and email us. We have a, a form on our website. You can also email us at info at rural and just tell us what, what you want to do. And um, we ask some questions and our questions are pretty simple. We don't make you fill out a ton of, a ton of forms or a ton of paperwork or do all this grant application stuff. You talk to me and I basically ask you, what do you want to do and how do you want to do it? Um, some of the teachers know what they want to do. You know, they say, "I want to teach my kids about robotics. I want a LEGO Mindstorms kit, and here's how I'm going to do it." Great. Sometimes we'll help with that. Uh, we want to know a little bit about the school. You know, make sure it's actually a public school. We don't really do much with private school. We tend to stay focused on public. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes teachers come to us and they uh, they don't really know what they want to do. You know, I want to teach my kids about programming, but I don't know how. Well, that's great we work with so many teachers we know exactly what works we can set you up with exactly those things and also maybe even putting you in contact with some of those other teachers so you can talk to them teacher to teacher and, and figure out what works there so uh basically emailing us is the number one way uh, we also spend a lot of time going out and seeking out teachers on our own we uh we partner with donorschoose.org which if you're not familiar with it is a, is a website teachers can go on there and create a project and they say i want to do this project and here's how it's gonna affect my students and here's what I need for it and it's gonna cost me this much. And you know they can list specific things. So we can go on there and we search for specific types of technology projects in rural areas, and we go out and seek out those teachers on our own and fund them there. So you know, if, if teachers listening and and you know maybe you don't you know first of all definitely get in touch with us directly. That's the best way. But otherwise, if you're on Donors Choose and you have a project there and you're in a rural area, chances are we'll find you. It doesn't always mean we'll fund you specifically, um, but we will try to find you. And and we have some uh, on our website and ruraltechfund.org. We have some basic guidelines. Uh, for the types of projects we fund, um, but for the most part, uh, we really just focus on rural areas, things go- that are going to be affecting the most number of students, and they're really focused on computer technology. How, how many students have been uh, touched by this so far? You know that that's that's. I'm really glad you asked that question because I'm kind of blown away. Every time I say it, I, I'm blown away. But right now, we've uh, this year alone in 2017, we reached th- uh, 28,000 students. Wow. Uh, right. That's, that's crazy because when we started in 2008, like I said, it was one student. We gave one scholarship. The next year, we gave two scholarships. Around 2010, we started working in the classroom. I think it was uh, – it's ramped up quickly. In 2015, it was about 3,500 students. Last year, it was about 10,000. This year, we're going to finish out at about 30,000, and we've set a really aggressive goal that within the next two years, we want to reach 100,000.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of students. <laughs> yeah, is that is that all in the um, like southeast area or just anywhere that's rural? Uh,
1: anywhere that's rural. So we're in about th- a little over 30 states right now. Oh, wow. um, now, it, it does tend to skew more towards the southeast just by nature of that's where we're located. Um, so you, So we do probably more in Kentucky and Georgia and South Carolina than about anywhere mm-hmm. else. But, uh, yeah, we're all over in about 30 states. Uh, We want to, along with that 100,000 kids, we want to get in the rest of the states we haven't been in within the next two years. You know, uh, a lot, which is a few places in the Northeast, a lot in the Midwest are some of the places we're lacking. We've actually done work in Alaska and Hawaii. You think those would be some of the uh, ones we might miss, but we've done stuff there. So we want to get into the rest of those 50 states. And also, we probably at some point want to think about moving into Canada. I think we'll probably forever stay um, in North America, but we would like to move into
0: Canada and maybe Mexico at some point, too. Uh, that'd be awesome. What What are some of your success stories? So the great thing about, you know, one of
1: the things we, we did not too long ago is we, we started asking our teachers, we really initially weren't very good at staying in touch with the classrooms we were contributing to, but we wanted to fix that. So we said, okay, teachers, really the only requirement we're going to give you for donating this equipment is we want you to stay in touch with us and tell us what you're doing and, and you know s- you know, send us information about it so we do get a lot of pictures back from the classroom we get a lot of notes back from teachers a lot of them have a lot of those teachers have the students write us thank you notes um i save every single one of those i actually have a a stack of those sitting next to my my desk right now and you can't see it but I, i'm telling you this stack is literally about a foot and a half tall of just thank you notes Wow. And and it's amazing. I read every single one of them. I'm going to keep them all forever. Uh, They just mean so much to me. So it's very cool. So we we just get constantly barraged with with stories about uh, teachers who introduce their students to this stuff, and they just get really, really excited about it. And they say, hey – I want to make a career out of this. And, you know, we've not been in the game long enough where we're tracking like outcomes from people. We introduced technology in second grade and now they're, you know, they're in the middle of their careers, but we do have definitely have some success stories where people, uh, especially students we've given scholarships to later on, like in high school have gone on into computer technology related careers. Um, uh, every year we give a scholarship to my home school district in Graves County, Kentucky. And a couple of those people have gone on to tech related careers. Uh, one of them actually, uh, uh, you know, it, it's funny. He went to college for computer science and he actually didn't end up sticking with computer science. He ended up moving into political science, but now he works for the speaker of the house in the state of Kentucky and he's interested in technology and he's influencing policy. And he has an mm-hmm. opportunity now to influence policy and he's technology aware and he knows all this about technology. So right. he may at some point influence technology policy in the state of Kentucky, which is which is an amazing thing to think of.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a good thing to pull out from that too, is that it's... I mean, you're trying to spark interest in computer, but, you know, these people might not end up working in computer, but they still might be able to impact it in in other ways and in other fields.
1: Yeah, and and that's the beauty of it, right, is you don't have to work in the technology field to use technology to impact other things. You know, one of the the things we look at a lot is ways to get the community involved with some of the projects that we have going on. Um, So we have some schools who what they're doing is they're building community gardens and gardening. Well, that doesn't have a lot to do with technology, except they're using Raspberry Pi's to like measure the soil properties and track, Mm. track the weather and they're tying technology into it. So they're using technology to better maintain and create and monitor this community service project that they're doing. And it's just a great way to use technology to better the community while not just focused on the technology itself.
0: Right. Absolutely. And there's, there's, I I imagine um, there's a lot of creativity, like just, just waiting to come out of that.
1: Oh, yeah. I think the model we really want to keep pushing going forward is is we want these kids to say, okay, we want you to take this technology and think of ways in your community it could be beneficial. And that can really adapt to any community. If you're in Graves County, like where I'm from, you know, it's a farming community. So there's a lot of opportunities for the intersection of technology and farming and ways to help those farmers do their jobs. And if you can do a community service project using that technology, well, that's beneficial for everyone. So that doesn't matter whether it's farming or, or mining or some type of industrial industry, it's the auto industry doesn't matter there's ways to use technology to help that and ways to help kids learn through the
0: lens of real world problems no absolutely that's 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 awesome uh so how can people contribute uh
1: the, there's a couple different ways so our website is realtechfund.org and you can go to slash donate and there's a big list of all the things you can do uh obviously the first and foremost is just financial gifts those really help us the most again volunteer led hundred percent go straight to the classroom. Not many charities can say that we're really proud of that. So you can donate there via PayPal, uh, via credit card. We also have a Patreon where you can set up a recurring donation. Uh, You can do the recurring thing with PayPal as well. The recurring donations really help us out a lot because they help us plan things um, quite a bit better uh, as opposed to just one time, but you know, It's all very helpful. So financially, those are the best ways to contribute. Uh, We're also on Amazon Smile. Uh, So if you go to smile.amazon.com, if you've not used it before, you go there and you pick a charity. And basically, you just shop like you normally would. It's the same Amazon website, except when you buy something, a percentage of your purchase price goes to that charity. So we get a percentage of that. It doesn't cost you any more, but we get a percentage of that. So that sort of thing helps us out a lot as well. So those are the best ways to contribute. But aside from that, If you just want to tell people what we're doing, that helps a lot, too. We have some shirts. There's a link to our store on the website. We have this really cool shirt um, that says it has our website on it. It says this shirt fights poverty because that's what we're really doing here. It's a great shirt because it gets people asking questions. You can buy a shirt, but really just advocacy, telling people about what we're doing, telling people that you heard about us on this podcast. And the more people who know the good work we're doing, uh, the better. Uh, You know, we had a good example of that this year. We got picked up and uh, CNN did a story about us. Oh, wow. um, and about the good work we were doing. And of course, that that helped tremendously. We got a lot of people who were interested. We got a few new volunteers um, who were helping us out with some things that came from that. And we also saw some donations from it. So that was very helpful to us. Again, this is December. This is our biggest fundraising month of the year. And if we want to hit that 100,000 student mark, this is the time where we really need to ramp up and the donations and get the word out and and try to uh, set us up for next year so we can make sure we do that.
0: Awesome. Is is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't already discussed?
1: Um, You know, the only thing I want to talk about, I guess, specifically is kind of the future. And, you know, one of the questions I ask is you're doing all this good stuff in the classroom. Is that just it? Is that what you're going to keep doing? And I I want to talk about one of the things we're looking at next is kind of our next big thing. And, you know, classrooms are great. There's a lot of good stuff that can happen in classrooms. But, you're a little inflexible about what you can do in in, in a school, right? It's not, it's, it's for students. It's not really an open community place necessarily where anyone can go into because there's security concerns and things like that. And one of the things we found is that obviously technology has a lot of potential to help people, not just students, but the community as well. We talked about some of those community projects. So we really want to facilitate those types of things better. So if I were to say, okay, wouldn't it be great if a rural community had a place where that was open to everyone, that was staffed, that was safe, that people could go to just to learn? And, well, they, all ha- they have that already. It's the public library. And this comes at a time when public libraries are really trying to redefine what they are. People aren't just going to public libraries just to read books anymore. Information is freely available on the Internet. So libraries are having to redefine things. Now, libraries still hold an important place in the rural community for a lot of reasons. They serve kind of as de facto community centers. <clears throat> Again, it's where a lot of people access the Internet. It's the only place some people have access to it. So I think we can leverage these libraries. So we're in the part of a study now, and and you may have seen some tweets to this effect, where I'm trying to find people in libraries – Who have successfully run programs related to technology education, whether they're coding clubs, robotics clubs, they're leading community driven technology projects, things like that uh, in rural and urban areas. And we're trying to learn and soak up and absorb that information like a sponge because we really believe that the public library has the potential to be the makerspace of the community. Right, that the library is is the new makerspace. That's really what we're thinking. So we're looking at that, and we really want to start investing in these places. And we hope to start a pilot program soon, where we go into a couple of these remote rural communities, and we say, "Hey." public library system. We're going to invest in you. We're going to provide some funding to help get some of these programs off the ground. And we're going to advertise those with the school district and the community centers. And we're going to teach children, adults, whoever wants to learn about technology, create some of these community-driven technology products or projects and get people excited about this and help generate even more opportunity that, that again, just has a much wider impact. We want to do that on like a pilot scale, figure out what works, figure out what doesn't work and essentially create a roadmap that we can hand out to other public libraries that says, hey, even without our funding, if you just want to do this on your own and secure your own funding or maybe do some public-private partnerships, here's how to do this. Here's how we know it will work and let's see what happens. Maybe even someday get some legislation behind it, get some public funding for it. But that's the plan and that's where we're going next.
0: Yeah, I like that idea of turning libraries into you know more than just books and, and more, like I said, spaces, maybe a space because uh, I know a lot of even local local user groups—it's sometimes hard to find space. If you can, mm-hmm. if there's a space provided for them to do that, I, I think that would help. Uh, you know, grow those user groups, and you know, just help the community in general. It's amazing how
1: fundamental the needs are in some of these places. You know, I mentioned donors choosing how we go on there and look for projects. And, you know, it, it was kind of a, an enlightening moment for me when I started looking and I said, you know, what it would be interesting was to go and look at every single project on here. So I went through and I, I picked a couple of geographic areas and I said, I'm going to look at every single project. And I created a tally sheet and I wanted to know what the teachers were asking for. And computers were certainly high on the list and technology was high on the list. But I, I bet you never guessed the number one thing that teachers were asking for. It was tables and chairs. Right, like that's a fundamental Mm -hmm. thing. They didn't have the tables and chairs they needed to set up flexible seating and allow students to interact with things other than just sitting facing the front of the room. Right. So, so schools they don't have budget for those things. They can't afford those things. Libraries are a great place to do that sort of thing because they they kind of already have that kind of modular aspect to them where you can move from section to section and rearrange things as needed. So, libraries meet a lot of those fundamental needs. Again, they're already there, uh, and it says something. You know, they're they're open. They're staffed by people. They're safe, which is a big thing in a lot of areas. You know, parents can take their kids there and trust that they will be safe. So um, the potential and the opportunity is there, and we're excited to see what we can do with it. Yeah, no, awesome. Uh, So what would you like to plug? Um, you know, that that's the Rural Tech Fund is it. I mean, you can find us, obviously, ruraltechfund.org. I mentioned a few times. We're on Twitter and Facebook, at Rural Tech Fund. Um, again, your contributions help a ton. That means a lot. Um, my for-profit business is Applied Network Defense. For every course we sell from Applied Network Defense, a portion of that goes to the Rural Technology Fund. Um, so that's important to me, and that's why it's kind of interwoven into all fabrics of my life. Um, <laughs> I've had the, the nonprofit for, for nearly 10 years now, but the for-profit business is fairly new, and it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to that I started a for-profit business to support my nonprofit business, mm-hmm. uh, so, so that's that's what we're trying to do, and um, so those pro, part of those proceeds go there as well. So those are the big things, and you can find out more about that at uh, NetworkDefense.io.
0: Awesome. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for joining me to discuss what is the Rural Technology Fund. Thank you, brother. That will do it. Hopefully, you learned something. Feedback is welcome at Timothy.DBlock at Gmail.com or on Twitter. At Timothy D. Block. Show notes can be found at timothydblock.com forward slash EIS. If you enjoyed the show, share it with others and rate it on iTunes. Have a good one.